So here we are, starting a new chapter of our Hashem, chapter 37. Last chapter, we were introduced to the teaching of our sages that Hashem created this world because he desired a dwelling place in the lowest realms. And the ultimate perfection of reality, the ultimate perfection of creation is going to be in the times of Mashiach, in the time specifically after the resurrection of the dead, where Hashem is going to have an abode down here below in the lowest realms, and his essence is going to be totally revealed even in the physicality of this world. Now, in this chapter, the Alter Rebbe explains to us that that ultimate reality, that ultimate perfection of creation, is not a reality divorced of our present time until we get there. Actually, that reality, that time where Hashem is going to be totally revealed and it's going to be the culmination of the purpose of creation is actually very much dependent on our actions today. It's not like, you know, here we are, we're working and suddenly a new reality comes about. No, actually today we are creating that reality. We don't see what we're creating, but our actions today are generating the reality of Geula. And we're going to come to realize the importance, the significance, the miracle of every mitzvah. Every mitzvah is literally a piece of that Geula reality. Every mitzvah generates that Geula reality. When you study this, you start to connect it in a whole different way. You start realizing the joy of the mitzvah, the importance, the significance of the mitzvah. It's not something that we just do and then whatever, we're going to get a reward. A mitzvah is the reward. And that's what we're going to visit in today's chapter. So here we are, chapter 37. In the previous chapter, the Alter Rebbe explained that the statement of the sages that God desired an abode in the lower realms refers to our physical world. This is the lowest of worlds in terms of the degree of revelation of the divine creative power. It is hidden in this world as it is in no other world. God desired precisely this world, pervaded as it is with doubled and redoubled darkness as his abode where his presence would ultimately be revealed to a greater degree than it is revealed in the higher world without any concealing, concealing garments whatsoever. This will come to pass in the Messianic era, the period for which the world was originally created, when godliness will be manifest throughout the world so that all the nations on earth will experience divine revelation. Vihine. Now, this ultimate perfection of the messianic era and the time of the resurrection of the dead, meaning the revelation of the Ein Sof light in this physical world, that time when Hashem's essence is going to be totally revealed in this physical world, is dependent on our actions and divine service throughout the period of exile, unlike the aforementioned revelation at Sinai, which was initiated by God. So this is not something that's just coming upon us. We are generating that reality, and it is commensurate with our actions and service today. The Altrabba now explains, for it is the mitzvah itself that causes, meaning creates, 
its reward. The Rebbe notes, unlike, for example, the wages paid by the owner of a field to the laborer who plows and plants it, where the laborer does not create the money he has paid, a mitzvah actually creates its own reward. So in the Mishnah in Perkei Avos, our sages say, schar mitzvah mitzvah, the reward of a mitzvah is a mitzvah. They similarly say, schar avera avera, the reward of a sin is a sin. We understand now that a mitzvah is not separate from the consequence. It's not like a system of conventions, like the carrot and the stick. You do this, you get the reward with the carrot. You do this, then you get beaten with the stick. No. The outcome of the mitzvah is the product of the mitzvah. The great Rabbi Yeshaya Halevi Horowitz, the Shalah, explains there's two kinds of reward. There is a reward that's heskemi, it's agreed upon, it's a convention. You work for someone, you agree upon a certain salary and you get paid. And then there's a, a reward that's tiv'i, natural, a natural consequence for your reward. It's like, for example, the joke of the guys who are driving a truck down the freeway and suddenly they see a sign that says, clearance, 10-6. Gosh, I don't remember. How tall is this truck? So they pull over, they measure the truck, they're out of luck. Their truck is 11-6. One guy turns to the other and he says, you know what? There's not a cop in sight. Should we just go for it? No, don't just go for it. It's not about the cop. You run through that bridge and your truck is going to get smashed. It's just a natural consequence. Are you going to call that a punishment? So the same thing with a mitzvah or a sin. They generate their own consequence. It's not a convention. It's a natural consequence. And this is what we're learning here in this chapter. Ki ba'asiyasa, mamshich ha'adam Giloi or ein saif baruchu milmaila lemata. The Alter now explains how each mitzvah generates its own reward. By performing the mitzvah, man draws down the revelation of the blessed ein sof light from above. Every time we do a mitzvah, we are pulling down divine manifestation into this world. Lehislabish v'gashmias olam haza to be clothed. In the physicality of this world. In an object which has heretofore been under the dominion of the Klipas Naiga and received its vitality from this Klipa. So, in order to understand this idea, let's backtrack a little. Let's take a bird's eye view of the entire universe. If we look at this world, at all creation, in terms of Kabbalah, there's two divisions. There's Tzad HaKadusha, the side of holiness, and then there's Sitra Achara, which is the other side. It doesn't have a name for itself. It's defined just by the fact that it is not the side of holiness. It has no intrinsic value or identity. All it is identified by is Sitra Achara, an Aramaic term for the other side. So what is the side of holiness? The side of holiness is everything that recognizes and submits to Hashem. Sitra Achara, the other side, is that which considers itself to be an independent entity and does not submit to Hashem, sees itself as an identity apart. 
So this could be a very, uh, <laughs> looks too black and white. It's either holy or profane. And the answer yes is yes. It's either holy or it's profane. Now, another way we call sitra ahra is klipa. Klipa means a shell. This is a terminology we use a lot in Kabbalah. Sitra Ahura defines the contrast between the side of holiness and the other side. Klipa, the shell, defines the relationship between holiness and the other side. What is a shell? A shell is a husk that protects the fruit so that it can grow and mature. And once the fruit has ripened, its role is to no longer be, to cease to be, to desist. It's there to protect, but in and of itself, it has no value. You want to eat a walnut, you're going to have to crack the walnut open and then eat the fruit. So with this model of klipa, as opposed to defining the contrast between the two sides, we are looking at the relationship between the two sides. And this is a concentric model, which sees the core of everything as divinity. And anything which is not recognizably divine is just hiding the divine. But essentially, everything is brought into being by the word of Hashem. And holiness vivifies everything. Now, like we said, in terms of Kabbalah, it's either holy or profane. However, if you're going to look in Jewish law, you're going to look at a tri-faceted world where there is mitzvah, obligation, you need to do this. Then there's avera, sin, you may not do this. And then there's the third category of rishus, optional. You could, you don't have to, it's up to you. Kabbalah does not ignore the field of rishus, optional. What it does is, it puts it on the same side as Sitra Ahra, the other side. The only difference between that which is forbidden and that which is optional is whether or not it is rectifiable. So there's the holy and there's profane. On the side of profanity, there is that which is rectifiable and that which is not rectifiable. And in Kabbalah, this originates in Maisa Merkava, Yechaskel's vision of the divine chariot. In his vision, he describes Ruach Sa'ara, a storm wind, Anan Gadol, a great cloud, Esh Mislakachas, a flaring fire, and then he says, Venaiga Lai Saviv, and there was a gleam about it. Those three first terminologies, Ruach Sa'ara, the storm wind, the great cloud, the flaming fire, those represent the three completely unrectifiable klipas. There is no way we're going to be able to rectify them. On the other hand, Naigalai Saviv, the gleam about it, this represents the fourth klipa, klipas naiga. This is the klipa that is rectifiable. So again, on the side of profanity, there are four klipas. Three of them are called Shalash Klipais Hatmeis Lagamri, the three completely impure Klipais. There is no way for us to rectify them. The fourth Kliba is called Klipas Nega, the gleaming Klipa. This is where 
our service is directed. We are supposed to take this rectifiable klipa, extract it from the profane, and raise it up to holiness. When it comes to those three completely unclean klipas, the term that we use for that in halacha is asur, forbidden. Asur, if you're going to if you're going to look at it actually very literally, as we learned in chapter eight in Tanya, actually means tied up. It means that there is divine light in it, just like there is divine light in everything. But that divine light is tied up. There is no way we can rectify it. The way we rectify it is by ignoring it, by not falling prey to it. That's the way to rectify it, by not engaging with it. There is another way to rectify it, but that's not the direct path. You cannot go along that path. If someone didn't know better and they engaged with those three unclean klipot and then they did teshuva and they became closer to Hashem and they realized that all that was asur, forbidden. If they do teshuva out of tremendous love, their sins become like merit and they actually rectify even the three completely unclean klipot, which they engaged with. But of course, that's not a route to take. That's what happens when a person does teshuva. It's a miracle. On the other hand, that which is permitted is called mutar, which means untied. It means that the divine energy which vivifies this object from the side of the profane is untied. It's rectifiable. We can release it. And that is really where our efforts are directed. It's not easy to engage with the physical world and constantly remember to keep our eye on the target that everything is here to serve Hashem. And anytime we engage with the physicality of the world, our goal is to make Dir Tainim, a dwelling place for Hashem down below. One Hasidic master said it was easier for him to study an entire tractate of the Talmud than to eat one meal. When you're engaged with holiness, you know, this is the easy route. You're engaged with holiness, it's a direct path, elevation. Eating is a pretty serious encounter. In fact, the Zohar says, Bread is eaten by a sword. Every time we sit down to eat a meal, it's a war. In fact, lechem is from the same word as milchama, a war. Every time we sit down to eat a meal, it's a war. Am I going to eat the bread or is the bread going to eat me? And that's where our efforts lie. Our efforts lie in taking that which is under the dominion of klipas naga, this rectifiable klipa, extracting it from that domain and elevating it to holiness. When we take something that is neutral and we use it for a mitzvah, what we do is we draw down the light of the Ein Sof within that object and we raise it up to holiness. We are now creating that redemption reality. We are creating that abode for Hashem. We don't see it. When Mashiach comes, after the resurrection of the dead, when it's going to be the total culmination of this period, we're going to see all the work that we did. We're doing the work now. We're actually pulling it down every single time. Every single time we do a mitzvah, we're literally pulling down the light of the Ein Sof into a physical object. We can't see it, but it's happening. Ultimately, we're going to see what happens. Okay, so I'm going to go back this line. In an object which had 
heretofore been under the dominion of Klipat Noga and had received its vitality from this Klipa, Shehem, namely, Kol Devarim Hatahirim Umutarim Shenases Bahem HaMitzvah Mises. All pure permissible objects with which the act of a mitzvah is performed. By performing the mitzvah, man draws down the ain't flight upon the object with which it is performed. The Alter Rebbe now illustrates this phrase, pure permissible object with which the act of the mitzvah is performed, citing examples, one object from each of the three categories, animal life, vegetative, and inanimate life. So now the Alter Rebbe is going to give us examples, objects that were previously under the dominion of Klipas Naiga, and now we are drawing down the light of the Ein Sof within these objects. Kegain, Klaf HaTfilin Umezuza Vesefer Tyra. For example, the parchment of Tefillin, Mezuzah, and Sefer Torah, which must be made of the skins of permissible kosher animals. Uchemaim Razal, Lehuchshar Lemlechas Shemaim, Ela Tahayim Umutarim Beficha. As our sages state, for the work of heaven, meaning mitzvah objects, only that which is pure and permissible to eat may be used. The parchment derived from such animals is, however, under, under the dominion of Klipat Noga until one uses it for tefillin, etc., when the mitzvah draws upon the parchment a revelation of the Ein Sof light. So here is an example from the animal kingdom. Kosher animals. Because remember, a non-kosher animal is not rectifiable. It's from the realm of the three completely impure klipot. But here is a kosher animal, a kosher animal whose hide is now used for tefillin, mezuzah, and sefer Torah. The altar of a quote from the Talmud, that only that which is permissible to be eaten can be used for a mitzvah. Actually, the question then becomes, does the animal have to be slaughtered in order to use its hide for the sefer Torah? And the answer is no. It doesn't have to be slaughtered. As long as it's originally a kosher animal, its hide could be used. And in fact, this is a question raised by Abai Susi, a heretic, from Yeshua HaGarsi. And he said, I don't understand. Why are you allowed to use an animal which hasn't been slaughtered in a kosher manner for the mitzvah of tefillin? And he said, I'll give you an example. Two guys were sentenced to death. One was killed by the king himself. And one guy was killed by the executioner. Who's more important? He said, obviously, the guy that was killed by the king himself. And he said, okay, so look at the animals that were just died in the field that weren't slaughtered. They obviously are more important. So he said, so why don't we eat them? He says, what do you mean, why don't we eat them? The Torah says, you may not eat the meat of an animal that just died on its own. So he said to him, Kalais, well done, good job. He accepted his answer. So here we see that in order to use it for a mitzvah, it has to come from the dominion of Klipa Snoga, the rectifiable Klipa. Similarly, in Esreg, which is not Arla, the forbidden fruit of a tree's first three harvests. And now actually the note belongs here. So we're going to skip to the note and we're going to come back. For Orla is of the three completely unclean klipot that can never ascend into holiness, as is written in Eitz Chaim. Thus, fruit which is Orla, deriving its vitality from these klipot, cannot be elevated by having a mitzvah performed with them. This just proves the point. You want to use an esrig? It has to be an esrig that comes from the rectifiable klipot. 
klipas neiga. If it's orla, it's forbidden. It's in the three completely impure klipot. It is tied up. It cannot be released. And similarly, any mitzvah whose performance involved a transgression, God forbid, since the sinful act receives its vitality from the three completely unclean klipot, the resulting mitzvah cannot elevate it. So, for example, a lulav that is stolen. A person might say, okay, I get it the first day it doesn't count. Because the first day, the mitzvah is, you have to take a lulav that's yours. But what about the rest of sukkahs? Could he fulfill the mitzvah with that? And the answer is no. Because it's a stolen lulav, it gets its energy from the three completely unclean klipot. And it cannot be rectified. We cannot draw down the light of the Ein Sof into this object. And as Arish Steinsaltz points out, this is not a moral judgment. This is a reality check. Right now, we're not deciding who's right and who's wrong, who's a good guy, who's a bad guy. We're looking at the object and deciding what it is. Then its very character, its essential makeup, is three completely unclean klipot. That means by virtue of its nature, it cannot be elevated. Esrog, that is Orla, just for what it is, it cannot be elevated. Now we're going back. Or money given to charity that has not been acquired through theft. And they're like, meaning other physical objects used in performing a mitzvah, all of which were previously in the realm of Klipat Noga, and as the Altar Rebbe will conclude presently, are now merged into the divine will by serving the purpose of a mitzvah. Now that one fulfills Hashem's commandments and will with these objects, the vitality within them ascends and is dissolved and absorbed into the blessed Ainsoflite, which is his will that is clothed in the mitzvot, the divine will that each mitzvah represents. So do you hear what's happening here? We take something that doesn't seem to have any holiness. And then we use it for a mitzvah purpose. What happens is the vitality in this object. Remember, everything has a soul. This is something that we learned from the Arizal. This is a Kabbalistic concept. He explains that even a rock has a soul. Nothing exists without the divine spark that brings it into existence. When we use a physical object for a mitzvah, that life energy of the object becomes absorbed within the light of Hashem. It totally is suffused with Hashem's light. It channels that divine energy and it's elevated to holiness. This is an incredible concept and it's the concept of a mitzvah. It reminds us how important a physical mitzvah is. Because you can see, what's a mitzvah already? It's just like, Take this and do that. Okay. But let's think about the divide that separates two people who are even very close to each other and have a lot in common. No matter how close two people are to each other, they can never totally bridge that gap. There's always going to be a certain distance. Everybody's different. Now, let's say you want to express yourself to another person. Your deepest space, your inner will. How are you going to do that? It doesn't just come out. First, 
And this is an idea that we discussed in a different context in chapters 20 and 21. First, your inner will is going to have to be channeled through your intellect and emotion, the character of your soul. Then your soul is going to have to express that will to your conscious self. How do you express yourself to your conscious self? You think. Okay, so it's the inner will, now channeled through the intellect and emotions, now channeled through your thoughts, and now to express them outward, you have to take your thoughts, contract them into words, and express them to somebody else. For the other person to connect with you in your deepest space, they have to trace those levels. So there's the words. Then there are your thoughts. Then your intellect and emotions. And finally, your deepest will. That's a lot to bridge in order to make sure that there's true identification. Now, is there a way to traverse all those steps and just go straight from will to other person? There is. It's, could you please pass me a pen? Now, as simple as that may sound, it bypasses all those steps and the person who passes you the pen is now in full accord with your will. Rabbi Steinsatz gives what he calls a distant analogy of an owner playing with his pet. So he throws the stick and says, go fetch. And the animal runs and fetches and brings the stick back to the owner. If the animal were to meditate, what is my master's will? Who is my master? How do I identify with my master? He's not going to get anywhere. But the moment the animal brings back the stick to the owner, in this regard, master and pet are in full accord. Their will are, is aligned. Now, of course, he calls it a distant analogy for a reason. We're not a pet. And Hashem div- does give us ways to identify with him. In fact, we have a piece of him within us. But the idea is the profundity of a mitzvah traverses all that and comes straight to, this is what I want. Could you do it? The second we do that, we're literally holding Hashem's will in our hands. We literally are holding this infinite divine energy in the act of the mitzvah. It is really incredible. You take a physical object You use it for the will of Hashem. And remember, a mitzvah is a place where there is no concealment of Hashem's countenance. It's Hashem's inner self totally expressed. When we take that mitzvah, when we take that physical object and we align it with Hashem's will, we're suffusing it with that state of no hiddenness, pure revelation, total alignment, drawing down the light of the Ein Sof within that object. Every time we do a mitzvah, we extract something from the realm of profanity and we suffuse it with the light of holiness, uniting it with its source. It's really incredible. For in a mitzvah, there is no concealment of the countenance whatsoever to hide his light, preventing the object from being absorbed in this light. As stated earlier, Wherever the Ein Sof light stands revealed, there is no separation from God. Everything is united with his light. In this case, the object with which the mitzvah representing revelation of the will and light of the Ein Sof is performed. 
When we do a mitzvah, the vital energy within that physical object is connected to its source and it channels the divine energy through it. We are creating that ultimate reality of an abode for Hashem every time we harness the physicality of this world and we use it for holiness. We are having Hashem's essence drawn out to it, drawn down into it. We cannot see it, but it's happening. Ultimately, we will see the effects of our action. And that's why we say this era is not divorced from the era of Mashiach. The era preceding that time actually leads into that time. It generates that time because the reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. It's the natural consequence of a mitzvah. What is a mitzvah? A mitzvah is channeling the divine energy into something that has previously been under the, under the dominion of Klipas Nega, the realm of profanity, elevating it, suffusing it with the light of Hashem, revealing Hashem's essence within it through the act of a mitzvah. The act of a mitzvah being a place where there is no concealment of Hashem's countenance whatsoever. So thus far, we described how to take something that's from the animal kingdom, something from the vegetable kingdom, something from the inanimate kingdom, which was the money for tzedakah. And now we're going to look at something from the human kingdom, which is the human animal soul. What happens to a human animal soul that is engaged in the act of a mitzvah? Thus far, the Alter Rebbe has discussed the effect of a mitzvah on the object used in its performance, meaning esrog, parchment used for tefillin, etc. He now discusses its effect on the power of a Jew's animal soul that is applied to the mitzvah. This soul, like the aforementioned objects, derives its vitality from klipas naiga, and like them, it experiences a similar elevation to the realm of holiness whenever it is used in the service of a mitzvah, being absorbed into the divine will represented by the mitzvah. So let's talk about the animal soul. Right in the beginning of Tanya, this is one of the introductions that we get to the human experience. Very enlightening. Why? Because until we come to Tanya, we think that I'm just one big hypocrite. How am I the same guy or how am I the same woman who does good things and bad things? Doesn't make sense. Who am I? Am I confused? Well, I might be confused, but I have actually two souls within me. There's a divine soul and there's an animal soul. And they are both struggling for dominion over me. Now, as we learned in Tanya, the first chapter, this animal soul is derived from klipas naiga, the rectifiable klipa. So every time we use our animal soul for a mitzvah, we are taking this energy and using it, investing it. We are taking the energy of the animal soul and investing it into the mitzvah. Now, why we need the animal soul to do a mitzvah? Because even though all good thoughts, like we learned in chapter 28, anything divine and holy, those divine initiations all stem from our divine soul. Our divine soul, like we learned in chapter 35, is not able to act directly upon the body. It cannot act upon the body because it has no relationship directly with the body. It is purely spiritual. The body is physical. There is no way for the divine soul to act upon the body, to cause the body to do something. How does it do it? Through the intermediary of the animal soul. The animal soul is the messenger. It connects to both. On one hand, it's spiritual, just like the divine soul. So it speaks the divine soul's language. It's an interpreter. On the other hand, its essence, its character is much more closely related to the body. 
It has material, physical drives. So here it shares something with a divine soul. It shares something with the body. And it takes the messages of the divine soul and uses it to activate the body. Anytime the divine soul wants to do a mitzvah, it is painfully so enclosed within the animal soul and uses the animal soul to act upon the body. So now, v'chein, kayach nefesh hachiyunis habahamas, shebe'evrei guf ha'adam ha'makayim ha'mitzvah, hu mislabish gamkein ba'asiyah zay. Similarly, the power of the vitalizing animal soul clothed in the bodily limbs of a person who performs a mitzvah, likewise clothes itself in the deed of the mitzvah. So when you do a mitzvah, the energy invested from the animal soul in the body is totally engaged in the mitzvah. That energy becomes suffused with holiness. Our animal soul's energy has been directed to holiness, totally suffused within holiness. Va'ila meha klipa, thereby it ascends from the klipa, v'nechlal bekedushas ha-mitzvah, shehi ritzayne yisbarich uvatel ba'ar ein saiv barachu. To be absorbed in the holiness of the mitzvah, which is his will and is nullified within the blessed Ein Sof light. So what gets elevated in the act of the mitzvah is not just the energy of the physical object, it's our own animal energy. Our own animal energy at that time is raised up from the klipa and elevated and absorbed into holiness. And this is actually a transformational act. There is a story of the previous Rebbe, while his father, the Rebbe Rashab, was a Rebbe, and a student applied to the yeshiva. Now, this student was extremely talented, but he had a certain unrefinement about him. And the previous Rebbe wasn't sure should he accept him or he shouldn't accept him to the yeshiva. And his father, the Rebbe Rashav, said, accept him to the yeshiva, and I'm going to help you give him guidance so that he can refine himself. It came Pesach time. And the Rebbe Rashab told his son, the previous Rebbe, to give this student the task of overseeing the matzahs. Now, this was an extremely difficult task. It was engaged a lot of physical hard work. Not just that, but he also gave him the task of studying and teaching a deep Hasidic discourse all at the same time. So in this period before Pesach, this student was working so hard physically and also to study. And he did it happily. The last night of Pesach, the previous Rebbe's father, the Rebbe Rashab, turns to his son and said, look at this boy. Even his physical features have changed. Look what happens when a person perspires for a mitzvah. So here this boy, who is extremely talented, extremely gifted, and yet had a problem with personal refinement, when he was sweating to do a mitzvah, when he took his animal energy and directed it to the divine, he actually experienced a transformation. And that happens to each of us. Every single time we do a mitzvah, we cause a world transformation, literally, that we cannot see. We are drawing the divine light into the physicality of the world. And we are also elevating our own animal soul. Because the energy that our animal soul invests in the mitzvah is elevated to holiness in the act of the mitzvah. Now, we could think that this is true only when it comes to physical mitzvahs. 
Because after all, in a physical mitzvah, we have to move our body, physically engage in the act of a mitzvah. But what if it comes to speaking? A mitzvah that involves speech. For example, Torah study, prayer. Maybe that does not elevate our animal soul. Because how much is the body engaged in such an action? We're talking about really using the physicality in order to perform a mitzvah. I would think that when it comes to a mitzvah involving speech, we don't really affect the animal soul. Alter Rebbe says it's not true, and he explains to us why. The Alter Rebbe now goes on to say that those mitzvot involving speech alone likewise affect this elevation of the animal soul, even though here the animal soul's power is not brought to bear in the performance of the mitzvah. Even in the case of such mitzvot as Torah study, reciting the Shema, prayer, and the like, the animal soul's power is elevated to holiness. So yes, true. The main idea of elevating the animal soul is through physical mitzvahs. But nevertheless, even in speech-related mitzvahs, we would consider to be spiritual, soul-centered mitzvahs, the animal soul too is elevated. Although they do not involve actual physical action, which is under the dominion of Klipas Nega, yet it is an accepted principle that thought is not a substitute for speech, and one does not fulfill his duty of Torah study, prayer, etc., unless he actually utters the word with his the words with his lips. So a person has to actually say the words of prayer in order for it to be considered prayer. He can't just think, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elkeinu, Hashem Achad. I said Shema. If you didn't say it with your lips, it's not counted as prayer. And this is something that a lot of people don't know. Torah study has to be said out loud as well. In fact, there's a story in the Talmud of the famous Bruria, one of the most brilliant women to ever have lived. She was the daughter of Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion. She was the wife of Rabbi Meir. They said about her that not a day passed where she didn't learn at least 300 matters pertaining to halacha. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi took her opinion into consideration and judged according to her view when it came to certain laws, especially when it came to purity of women. And she once had an argument with her brother and one of the leading sages said, listen, Rabbi Hanina's daughter, Broria, is a greater scholar than her brother. So this is Broria. And she once comes across a student who is studying quietly and she reprimands him. And she says, don't you know what it says? Arucha bakal ushmura, ordered in all and secured. If the Torah is arranged in all your 248 limbs, it's secured. If not, you're going to forget it. If a person is not involving his body in the act of Torah study, if he's not speaking out loud, it's much more easy to forget. In fact, it says about a student of Rabbi Eliezer that he used to study quietly and after three years, he forgot what he learned. If we look at Hilchas Tamatira of the Alter Rebbe, I'll read this to you. I think it's very important to know how important it is to study Torah out loud and it helps us understand what we learn. It helps us retain our studies. It says like this, this is from the laws of Torah study by the author of the Tanya. One must make a point of audibly vocalizing whatever he studies, whether scripture, Mishnah, or Talmud, 
And whatever one studies only mentally without articulating audibly when he could have done so, he does not fulfill the mitzvah of ulamaratem isam. You shall study them. This is from Devarim. Maish Rabbeinu is telling the Jewish people. And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Shema Yisrael es hachukim es hamashpatim asher anaychi doiver ba'aznechem hayayim ulamaratem isam ushmartem la'asaysam. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances which I speak in your ears today and learn them and observe them. A person only studies mentally, does not articulate what he's studying. He does not fulfill this mitzvah. This is indicated by the directive, and this is from the prophet Yehoshua. This Torah scroll shall not depart from your mouth, and you shall meditate upon it. So if a person does not say the words, he does not fulfill the mitzvah of Ulamaratim Aisam. However, he does fulfill a different mitzvah, and that is, You shall meditate upon them day and night. So if a person is studying quietly, he is not guilty of neglecting Torah study. But he doesn't get the mitzvah of ulamaratem isem and study them. He needs to study them out loud. Studying out loud actually aids our memory as the Altar writes later on in the Laws of Talmud Torah, chapter 4. So here we see that yes, Torah studying, prayer, it's not an actual physical mitzvah like other physical mitzvahs, such as shaking a lulav and esrog, lighting Shabbos candles, any mitzvah that is performed to the body. It doesn't cause that amount of physical engagement. Nevertheless, because we have this principle that hear her lav kadibor dummy, thought is not a substitute for speech, then we understand that the animal soul is engaged in the mitzvah. Lakaimalan. The Akimas Svasav Have Maisa. It is also accepted that moving one's lips constitutes action. And such action, as the Rebbe notes, likewise stems from the vitality of the Klipas Nega that is nourished by the animal soul, as does the actual bodily action spoken of earlier. So the principle is like this A sin offering, a carbon chatas, is not given unless it involves an action. What if somebody sins by saying something? Do they have to bring a sin offering? And the Talmud answers that yes, because that the twisting of the lips is an action. The Talmud calls it a maisa zuta, a minor act, but it is an act. So here we see that the animal soul is elevated even in the act of Torah study and prayer because the the animal soul is involved. There is action involved. Yes, it's not a total action mitzvah, but it is an action mitzvah nevertheless. For the divine soul cannot express itself with the physical lips, mouth, tongue, or teeth, the instruments of speech, except by way of vitalizing the of, by except by way of the vitalizing animal soul actually clothed in the organs of the body. So let me wrap up what we said until now. First, we spoke about the fact that today's mitzvah actually generates the geula reality. Every mitzvah is a piece of that time because every mitzvah, although we don't see it, is drawing down divine essence into this world, drawing it down into the physical object, elevating that physical object by extracting it from the realm of profanity and elevating it to holiness, suffusing it with the light of the infinite one. And not only is that vital energy of the object elevated to holiness, 
but our animal soul's energy is elevated to holiness every time we invest it in a mitzvah. And it's not just an actual physical action mitzvah, but even a mitzvah that's only performed through speech, which you think, how much action is involved in a speech? The bottom line is, you do not fulfill the mitzvah of Torah sweat study unless you're saying it. And moving the lips is an action which requires the involvement of the animal soul. Since the animal soul is involved, every time we study Torah, we are drawing down the divine energy into our animal soul, elevating our animal soul to holiness. And the law is that when you hear someone else study Torah, so you prepare, you are participating in a Torah lecture, it is counted as if you said the words yourself. So we are participating in Torah study together. And at this time, we are literally creating an abode for Hashem down here in this lowest realms, drawing down his light into our animal soul, into our body, elevating this world, creating that amazing reality that we can't wait to see where Hashem's essence is going to totally be shining in this physical world. And he will have a home down here below in these lowest realms. So class is over for today and I'm opening up for questions and discussion. I may have missed this at the beginning, but like, why are there unrectifiable clipotes? Like, why is that kind of a part of creation was one of the questions I had. Okay. And then um, kind of the other one I had was like, I guess this is actually kind of the topic of like, what's, um, what is rectifiable? Because I'm thinking, like, I know you said unkosher animals aren't, but then I'm thinking like, well, my husband and I have pet rabbits who we love dearly and, you know, they're not kosher, but it contributes to shalom by it. Right. Know? So, so the um, first, the first question was, why are there unrectifiable clipo? And this is Part of what we discussed in chapter 22, Hashem brings these things into existence. He hates them, but he has them there so that we can, we can have freedom of choice. Mm, so when we choose okay. to, it's like, I love the example that Rabbi Steinzels gives. What is the hurdle there for? It's not there for, meant for you to trip. It's meant for you to jump higher. Mm. So these things that we have oh, to resist, yeah. they call forth inner energy. We resist them. And that's the way they're elevated by us not engaging in them. We, are, we in turn are raised higher. And as far as the rabbits, you can have pet rabbits. You just can't eat them. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> so for example, right. So for, it's a good question because, for example, donkey's not kosher. But if a person is riding a donkey to use a mitzvah, they're taking, there's obviously something about the, the life force of this animal that is rectifiable. And that mm. is able to be <laughs> elevated. So there's the way to engage with it in a holy way would be the klipat noga way. I mean, which the way to engage with it in a way that it's rectifiable, such as having a pet and bringing more joy to your home, that would be in a way of klipat noga, eating the animal, mm. which is clearly forbidden. It's not, it's, in other words, right. kosher animals are not non-kosher animals are not forbidden to be owned. So gotcha. you're you're using yeah. their energy in a way that is permissible, and that energy is klipas nega energy. 